Hello, and welcome back to the Sabbatarianism podcast, a podcast for Sabbatarians by Sabbatarians. This is episode 45. I'm your host, Justin Hoos, and I have back with me my co-host, Mr. Richard Davis. Hello, Richard. Hello, Justin. Now, today, Richard, is a special day. Do you know why? No, why? Well, you and I are now hosting another person. Yeah. We, we are the hosts of this thing, and we're going to host... <laughs> Mr. Neil Saul, who is also with us. Hello, Neil. Uh, I'm no longer the uh, pinch hitter, huh? Yeah, you're no longer the pinch hitter. Now you're the one that's being hosted. Do you feel special? No. (laughs) I didn't know we were all hosts. We're just all hosts. Well, you're my co-host, and and I'm the host. So Uh, we are effectively hosting Neil. And I'm just the guest. Yes, you're the pinch hitting guest. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's going to be a little different today with three of us, but... uh, Today we're going to go through 2 Corinthians. Richard is back. His, his wife is still recuperating from her surgery, but he's able to come with us today, and we're thankful for that. Uh, but we left off with 1 Corinthians, and we read through that, and now we're going to go through 2 Corinthians. And is there anything that you want to cover before we get going? Yes, I do. I'd like to talk about something that Paul goes into within this book more extensively, and that is revealing or talking about initiatives or motives in doing things. Uh, He hit on it briefly in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians when he answered those men who were criticizing him. Uh, And this all goes back to things that Christ said when he told his disciples who became the apostles. If your eye is single, you have a single sincere purpose, the light that comes into you is going to be light and fill the whole body. But if it's double, if you have an, an additional motive anywhere in it that pollutes it, actually, then the light... A little that, leaven will leaven the whole lump. That's right. The light that comes into it is going to be darkness. And Paul, obviously, his begun to run into some criticism from other teachers. Who? He doesn't say. Whether it's uh, from Jerusalem, uh, like apparently it was somewhat in the book, in his letter to the Galatians, he mentioned that. I'm not sure. But he does have those who are criticizing him and actually jockeying for position or wanting to uh, diminish what he was doing. And as he goes through this book, he brings out a lot of things about really from self-examination that are worthwhile and valuable to any teacher or to any Christian as far as how they relate to each other, but especially to people who want to be preachers or ministers as to what their real motives are and how they go about it, which was the actually the theme of 1 Corinthians 9. Christ had said, if your eyes double, you got your own initiative involved, you're going to mess it up. If you're here for a job or money or power or politics... Then you've got your reward. Yeah, and that's all it's going to be. And Paul ends up at one place in this letter talking, saying, I must speak in order to compare myself, I've got to speak as a fool. And then he adds it by saying... And apparently you don't have a problem with fools. Entertaining because, fools. Yeah, because you yeah. let these guys pull this off and do this. <laughs> so let me speak as a fool. 
And it just goes back to many of the instructions that the disciples were given where he said, Christ said, uh, he was talking about them going and doing what they were supposed to do and not worrying about what they had tomorrow because Christ, God is able, if he clothes the sparrows, he's able to take care of you. And then right after that is when he, he gives that instruction, if your eye is double. Of course, in the New King James, it says if your eye is evil, but the original, it says it's double. And double-mindedness is a principle that's spoken of even in the book of Psalms. If you have anything but a good, godly initiative in what you're doing, eventually there's bad going to come of it. And Well, that's just a theme that we'll see as we go through this letter that Paul seems to to talk about. And it's more from self-examination. In other words, this is why I do this, and this is how I'm going about this. And he begins right here in the first chapter. Okay. It's in... uh, so that it's it's all laid before everybody. And Basically, you can't serve two masters. No, and you can't serve yourself and God both. And this it's I think this is a a, a letter that everybody that professes to be a teacher of others or or a, wants a to preacher be preacher yeah. or a minister needs to to be able to see clearly what he's saying and to examine themselves before they go think about going into it. I remember saying to a high-up minister in one of the churches of God one time, you guys were wanting to, you know, be president of the group or whatever, and I said, you know, Paul said that his qualifications weren't how, what job he had held down or what education he had had. Sure, he had had that, but he said, my qualifications were that I were beaten for you. I was beaten for you. I w- was drowned, almost drowned in the sea yeah. several Snake times. Bit, everything yes. else. I, I suffered for this. I was stoned three times. And I said, that, there it says qualifications. If you guys list those as the qualifications, <laughs> I wonder how many of you are trying to be the be trying to be the yeah. big shot of the big money. Well, isn't it uh, James that says that if you desire to be a teacher, uh you know, or you shouldn't desire maybe because you'll have a greater uh, judgment. Judgment, you mm-hmm. know. And evidently, some of these teachers don't understand that. Yeah, well, they or want to be teachers. Non-teachers. <laughs> well, if you what Paul uh, actually st- said back there in uh, the first letter was, if they if you're doing it of your own will, you have your reward. Yeah, it's like Christ said the. Pharisees say these long prayers to be seen of men. They have their reward. Men see them. But that's all that you'll that's ever it. get out of it. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, I've thought a bit about this for a, a long time and just tried to observe the way things are. And I had one of these guys say to me when I confronted him, well, at least we're doing good for people. Well, maybe you are. You know, if you're teaching the truth in Christ and you're teaching that people need to keep God's commandments and maybe you are doing it, but I think you're also causing a lot of trouble around you, especially with brethren and trying to play God over people and divide people because that seems to be what it comes down to. 
when politics are involved. You can only teach this, and this is what we say. Anybody that don't accept this needs to get out of here. So there's another guy comes along and says, okay, I'll teach this, and now let me get me a group. Every bit of that at the core is division and strife. And it's selfishness. Yes, it is. That breeds it all. It's their own initiative. Yeah. Now, Paul specifically was at least in part, accused of taking that for money, right? Doing yes. this for money. Yes. That was the real accusation, right? That was at least a great deal of one that he, yeah. he talks about here because he, he has told the Corinthians that he wouldn't take any money from and them. And you're going to send somebody with me when I take your money up so that someone can verify this. That's right, and that should be done anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. You've got a guy that has a church, and he says, you know, once you give, you tithe or whatever it is and you give it to the ministers, that's your responsibility is over. It's none of your business what's done with it. Find yourself another place to be and stop listening to that guy. Yeah, it's, it's mm. not that guy's money. No, it's everybody's. It's, it's, it's God's. It's the group to decide what should be done with it. If right? you're doing, giving it to God for a godly purpose, it's spiritually given to God and those people who represent God will not have any qualms about exposing openly what's done with it and make sure that it's done for a godly purpose. And look to the group for decisions, right? I yes. mean, we, we talk about things here, what we should and shouldn't do as a group. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Anything else? No. Neil? No. Are you hosted? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you well hosted? Are you well hosted? Are you feeling hosted? Like a cupcake. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we got three of us. Who's going to read? Richard, you going to read? I'll try to read this morning. Okay. This afternoon or whatever time it is. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Acacia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, by their sufferings, he's saying, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And if we are afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. I'll just stop right there. And he's, he's talking about how the Spirit the correct spirit should flow back and forth or be passed on by his sufferings that he goes through with Christ for their sake. They're consoled. And if they're going through sufferings, that teaches them to do the same thing. He, he, he's also laying the groundwork for the next two or three chapters. Oh, yeah. He's laying the groundwork for the whole for the, for whole, the whole book. Yeah, whole yeah. book. Whole yeah. letter. Which yeah. is what he always does. Sure. And it's big 
we're losing a lot of understanding when you try to take his, these verses out of context and mix them together with some somewhere else. Yeah, you make a sermon about a certain theme, but unless this thing is written as read as a whole letter, you really miss a lot. For we do not want you, verse 8, to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sense of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks might be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. He's talking there about what they've been given to sustain them as they go along. I've I've really found this to be interesting because Paul basically says here that he had to learn right here through through this suffering that he's outlining here to not trust in himself, or he's saying it in the plural, trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead only. Like, it it, it looks like a a growth thing happened to Paul himself here, and I've, I've always kind of been comforted by this a little bit in that even Paul was growing while he was writing this letter, while he's an apostle, after he's been personally taught by the Messiah for three years, he's still growing. He's still in a state of growth, and I think he's speaking to that right here. I think so, and I think also that he's, you know, he we could go back to Abraham's example when he went to offer up Isaac, and he knew what he was going to do, and he told the men before he left them, he's coming back with me. Yeah, he, he went ahead to this as as giving up his own life, or he he was willing to sacrifice his son Abraham was, with the full assurance that God would raise him up because of what God had promised, and this is what Paul is saying here. We uh, despaired of our own life and went forward in what we're supposed to do, even if it meant we're going to be killed because we trust that God is able to do what He needs to do with us. Yeah, it's now you if you. Look at Paul's background. I mean, he was used to being a chief Pharisee with the whole power and authority of that secular government and everything behind him and what he did. Now he's doing something exactly the opposite. He's standing alone before all the people that are out to kill him. Nobody's supporting him except God and having to be that's assured assured that that's good enough. Yeah. And he's learning by that. And in order to go forward and do anything, he's got to trust in somebody being able to feed him from one place to the next. You don't have a garden out back. (laughs) Yeah, not when you're traveling. (laughs) No, all the time. For our boasting is this. That means what is important to us, what we're focused on. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, and not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. For we're not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Need any comment on that? No. I think That's what's important. To, yeah. You're important to us, and we should be important to 
he should be important to them. That's that's the flow of God's love and God's spirit. Family. Right? Yes, that's what's important. And in this confidence, I intend to come to you before, intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us a spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God's witness against my soul and to spare you, I came no more into Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith or by your faith you stand. Now, I think that from verse 15 down to verse 24 bears some discussion there. What do you think he's saying? It was not yes and no, but it was yes. I think he's just saying that he, he wasn't back and forth or wishy-washy. He, he said what he was going to do, and he did it. Yeah, and he said, therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Was it, well, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? Or when I come to you, is it for a negative purpose or a positive purpose? I mean, when I correct you, as he's stating, like, even though I have no dominion over your faith, your faith, he did have the authority from Jesus Christ to establish the truth in the gospel for the New Testament church. And that was his authority. Was he wishy-washy about it? Was he back and forth? Yes and no? No, he was definitely positive, not only about what he needed to do, but what his purpose was. Where he's going, what he's doing. Yes, he's he's there for their good. Yeah. There's nothing negative about it. Well, I see in verse 20 where he says, for all the promises of God in him are yes. Yes. So he... They're positive. Yeah, he had. He decided he was going to do this because he knew that that was God's will, which had to be the Holy Spirit working in him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, chapter 2. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Yeah, I think that's... That's part of what he's getting at there. You know, I don't want any negative thing to come into this. And I think in a way he's saying it just like I would with a parent when I had to correct my children. No, I don't hate you. (laughs) I had to do some correction, but it's because I love you. He got after him pretty good in the first letter. Yeah, and he don't want them to be in a sorrowful state when he comes because then there's not going to be that brotherhood and that fellowship and that love that flows the way it should. And he's beginning self-examination now. He's not just talking about obeying some law. He's talking about how he, as a leader, loves and approaches those that he's interacting with. 
You see this, and we'll see this throughout this whole letter. And I wrote this very thing to you, verse 3, lest, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is in the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. That's like a child's parents saying to a child, when I gave you a spanking, it hurt me worse than it hurt you. Oh, and I did it because I love you. <laughs> yeah, that's really. But Solomon <laughs> said, if, if, if you love your children, discipline them. You correct them. Yeah, right. I, I listened to a program yesterday that this exact topic came up, and it reminded me of uh, uh, America's Funny Videos where a little girl gets a spanking and her dad says, you know why I spanked you, don't you? And she says, yeah, because you love me. And then she's rubbing her behind and she looks up at him and says, I wish you didn't love me so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the guy told me one time, that worked for me one time. I had him do something he didn't like. And I said, well, it builds character. And he said, I think I bet had about all this character I can stand. <laughs> That's just the way it is, and God's the same way. That must ask yourself, does it hurt God when he has to correct us? Well, and it's said that he only chastises those that he loves, that he loves and that he's working with, you yeah. know, so it's actually yeah. a good thing. Verse 5, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of us to some extent not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. Now, he's referring back to the guy they had correct to correct. In, Chapter 5? Yeah, of yeah. First Corinthians. Yeah. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and to comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. In other words, it had its effect. And that caused him to change his ways and to repent. And now just let it go. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. And I just want to stop there for a second. When Christ told his disciples, whatever you forgive, Sins, I forgive sins. That's what he's talking about here. I'm not going to harbor a grudge against those to whom you've forgiven it. The Spirit has to be the same among us all. For if, for if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sake in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So if there was division between them through this yes. forgiving or not forgiving, then Satan would take advantage He's of it. He's going to use it. And you also notice here that Paul is, he says, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So this old nonsense about the primacy of Peter and having the keys to the kingdom of heaven and nobody else does, and what he forgives, uh, uh, God forgives, and, and so forth. Paul is saying right here, he has the same authority. 
He yeah. has the same relationship right here. I've forgiven him in the presence of Christ, therefore Christ has forgiven him, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for not we're not ignorant of his devices. This is not talking about some special thing that Peter or Paul or anybody has. This is talking about how the forgiveness of God, as we are representatives of Christ and before Christ, should work among us all. If we all have the same spirit flowing through us, then it should all work in unison. That's unity. Right. And when we forgive, Christ forgives. There's That should be the end of it. And if it's not, then Satan is going to use that. It, it is. Uh, that's just human nature. You yeah. told a grudge. Yeah. And, and it, that's one of the things I had to overcome as I started my walk because I would, you know, I wasn't going to get even. I was going to get one up. And I had to be able to release that. And say, okay, I forgive you, and it's over. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not an easy thing. Your mind wants to go. I was, was going to say, I'm still working on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still am too, but it's not near as bad as it was. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm not burning down houses. <laughs> no, you, you. That's what you were doing. <laughs> uh, was that a confession? <laughs> well, almost. It didn't actually burn down. <laughs> no, but it didn't burn the whole the way. <laughs> uh, we're just joking here. Yeah. All right. Where are we at? Verse twelve. Verse twelve. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and the door was opened to me by the Lord, I have no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God. There it is. Some people are out there maybe telling the truth, but they're peddling it. They're using it for personal gain in some way. That's right. But as of sincerity, not as from God, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So what's he talking about in verse 16? To the one we are an aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And that should be, if you go into unbelievers or some of these groups that don't believe in Christ or have perverted the gospel. Then it's leading to death. Yeah, you're, you're stinking the place up because you're contradicting what they teach. We're the aroma of death to them. Well, and we're the aroma of life to those who are really looking for truth in a sincere heart. But I was going to say showing, like you always talk about with the knowledge of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's an aroma of death to others, right? Having all these rules and right and wrong and, you know, any more people have this is my truth and this is your truth and no, there's only one truth. And yeah, that's we, right. speaking like that to them is is 
like death to them. Well, anybody has an adversarial spirit or Christ is not dealing with, absolutely hate this. Yeah. And they're not going to listen. And it doesn't matter what you write or read or put out there, they're going to start arguing with you immediately. In verse 15 says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, and goes on and says, And, and among and those who are perishing. perishing. And so yeah. th- those are the two, one leading to death, one leading to life. That's right. But when I read that, I see, uh, I, it reminds me of, of the sacrifices and the burning of, of the meat that was a sweet, soothing aroma to God. Mm-hmm. If we are those being saved, then uh, that fragrance of our efforts and our work, providing it's with the right, uh, the right heart, mm-hmm. is is you know that's that's a fragrance to to, to God. Yes, I, I mean I, I see the correlation. Mm-hmm. Chapter three, verse one. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Who ordained you? (laughs) (laughs) You uh, Well, who ordained ordained that guy? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Keep going. He's saying, do we need again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as others, epistles of commendation to you or letters so accommodation from you. You are our epistle. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, or might we say a, a diploma, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through God through Christ, toward God, not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills. That original of the covenant could only kill, but the spirit gives life. What he's saying there is, Diploma don't mean anything. Where you went to school don't mean anything. Who ordained you don't mean anything. It doesn't. Is the fruits of God's Spirit showing up in the labor that you're accomplishing? That's the only thing that matters. You and the change and the betterment in your life and the fruits of it is my letter of commendation. I think he's also tying in here the the loved wife versus the the life or wife of uh, legal obligation, uh, tablets of stone versus tablets of flesh, and yeah. the new covenant of the spirit, not of the letter. I, he's he's hearkening back to these this juxtaposition of the of the two different relationships in here as well. Yeah. Well, and I think too in verse two where he says, "You, you are our epistle written in our hearts." Uh, he had seen their works. Known and read by all men. And, and they were good. And now they're being corrupted by influences from outside. Yeah, or attempted to be. Yeah. And, you know, if you see growth, do you see good fruits in a 
in people, then that's the only thing that matters. I don't care what kind of education you have or who ordained you or anything like that. The only thing that matters is your sincerity to God and what you're doing is the Spirit is flowing through you and the fruits of the Spirit is showing up as a witness. That is your letter of commendation. And once again, I, I think we talk about it almost every podcast. It's about your heart. Yes. It's about what is in your heart. Yes. Verse 7. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, and he was talking about the former covenant, was glorious. I mean, those people that at least had the law that was written on stones. And by doing so, they were better off than any other people on the face of the earth. And this is a part of a question here. Yes. He's making a question. Yeah. If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones is glorious, it wasn't some evil thing that oppressed people. It was glorious. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? In other words, you know, if a bunch of rules are right and wrong on tablets of stone to direct people who don't have a heart to love God was at least for their good and glorious if they'd taken it, how much more is a ministry of a spirit that changes that heart into something that loves God? And puts the laws on in your heart. Writes in them your in your heart, right. yes. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even that was, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. That does not mean God's commandments and laws are passing away. It means that covenant, that that original relationship and covenant is, has no place now. I mean, we have to have something better than that. More glorious. Yes. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, because they had rejected God. Moses didn't, and that veil represented the veil that was later in the temple because they had said, no, we will not come up to you the way Moses does. Verse 14, but our mind, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament or the Torah because the veil is taken away in Christ. There it is. Now I want to just stop there. Yeah. How does that compare with people that have said, well, we shouldn't obey the oral law of the Pharisees or the rabbis? but they are God's authority concerning the law that's written. This says they don't have a clue what it's about. They were blinded. Yes. And that's even though that veil was torn too. Yeah, because they haven't accepted it. Yeah. It, says it right remains here. unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. That's the right. Torah. They yeah. don't, because they, they haven't, haven't gone accepted Christ. It. They haven't yeah. gone to the new relationship, into the loving relationship. They're still clinging to the bondage. That's right. And because of that, they don't have a clue about its insufficiencies. 
Mm. Because they didn't want to know about anything better. Because they glorify it. Yeah, yeah. that's it. And there's So people- why would you go look to them to know how we should keep the Sabbath or holy days or anything else? There's still that people glorifying no in, the, sense. in the old way as well. Yeah. yeah. There really is. Even people in the church of God. Yes. Yeah. Glorying in the Torah yeah. and the bondage relationship. But even, verse 15, but even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Yeah. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And by the Lord, he means Christ. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the transfer of the Holy Spirit, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That means God is changing our hearts and our minds into something different. And there's no veil. We go to God directly. Directly. Yes. And that's why Paul had said over here, I don't have dominion over your faith, and I'm not one that does. Because Christ had said, you're not to ever do that. Everything that the apostles read about what their role and responsibilities and authority is has to be filtered through that plain command of Christ. And we have to understand it in that regard. Okay. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of the Lord. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but of Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. Your bondservants. Notice how he says he views their relationship. I'm your bondservant. I'm not your master. For it's the Lord, it's God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, not Paul, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. There's a comparison between a burial or the death and then the resurrection, so that the life of Christ that now is in them may do its work. For the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, we have to put ourselves and our own self to death, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, and therefore I spoke, we also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up 
with Jesus and not present us and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. I'll just pause there and notice how he's he's saying that this willingness to deliver himself up to death for them is actually Christ in him, as it would be in us by our self-sacrifice. That, that refers back to the cross of Christ that we have to bear, which is totally contrary to our own selfish nature. Which also leads back to agape, worrying about others above your own That's right. self. That death in us brings about life in you. Okay, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's our hope. We don't see it yet, but it's there. Chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So you're talking about a body. That's right, a body, a a spirit body. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is in heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed or dead, but rather clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So he's talking about the Spirit has been given as a guarantee that you will someday escape this body of death, like he called it, your flesh, and escape into a spirit body, to become a spirit being and get away from all this. Yes, the transition that will occur, the right. resurrection. Yeah. And that spirit is given as a, a down payment, I believe, is what it means. Right. That it's not in us to the full. It's an earnest. Yeah, it's an earnest or a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We're confident, yes. Well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, there's a man saying, I wish it was over an hour with God. Right. And I would be pleased with that, but I've still got things to do. Verse 9, therefore we make it our, our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord... We persuade men, but we are well known to God, and also trust are well known in your conscience. Verse 12, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. 
double-minded people. That's right. That's what he's talking about right there. And he's saying, we give you the opportunity. To defend us. Yeah, because of the fruits of what we've born in you. Right. you, You ought to be able to see it. So stand up for it. Don't put up with that. For if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. Or out of our heads. <laughs> or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died, one died for us, which is Christ, then all died. And he died for us all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but from him for him who died for them and rose again. So he paid the price for everyone. Then we all belong to him, and our role is to live for him and to live to please him, not ourselves. And that is a transition. That's right. Verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And that's what that ministry is, to reconcile us face to face to God, Jesus Christ. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of our reconciliation. And that goes back to Ezekiel, prophecy in Ezekiel 36, when he says, even though none of you deserve it, I'm going to take the heart of stone out of you. I'm going to put a heart of flesh in there. I'm going to put my spirit in you and clean you all up. And I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. And that was his will. That's right. That's the will. And that is, that is what we have. And that's what the purpose of this is for. And, and even if they don't want to, it'll eventually happen. Where, you know, Jesus, I, I forget, I think we read this, that every knee will bow yeah. and every tongue will confess Jesus. And, uh, uh, you know, for some people, that'll be way distant future. For, yep. Now it's for us who are called. Yes, and, you know, that's one of the benefits that we can, we can gather for those of us who understand that the holy days or God's appointed times don't represent Jesus like we're told. They represent, as Colossians clearly says, things to come or occur that are fulfilled in Jesus. Yes, he brings that. Yes, it has many levels of understanding. But we go through this New Testament and we read about the church of the first fruits or the church of the firstborn. What does that mean? I mean, to anyone who's lost the understanding of the feast of the first fruits, what meaning does that even have? When you come to Revelation where it says you've got 144,000 and these are the firstborn, the firstfruits of God. How are they different from the others? Have you ever even heard that brought up by one a radio preacher? <laughs> no. And, and by any religion, it is primary to understanding who he's talking to and what their future is. 
God's plan of salvation is so more complex than is represented by Christianity who is compromised with paganism and accepted this old, you die and you go to heaven. Well, you, you pray one prayer and you're saved for life, and then you die and go to heaven. Yeah, or God's trying to, God's in a big war with Satan, trying to fight a battle to see how many souls he can save now. And if he is, then he's losing. I tell you that. So how ridiculous that is. But to those that think you don't need to keep those appointed times that represent the truth about these matters, the knowledge of them are lost. Just like people that want to do away with the 4th of July now. Well, the knowledge of freedom and what this country was built upon will be lost in a couple of generations if you do away with it. Now, nobody's a Christian because they keep holy days. No. Glorying and things like that keeps you bound up in something that keeps you from advancing. But that don't mean they're done away. And that don't mean the knowledge and the value of what they are is, is lost. And if you let anything go like that, your life is worse off for it. Continue, verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading, were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, reconciled to God. For we made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Very plain. That's the only way we can be righteous. That's God. right. God puts it in us by his grace and his mercy. Through through Jesus. That's right. Yeah. And through our faith in him. And it will come through that. But I want to comment further on we're ambassadors for Christ. That some people teach that if we're ambassadors for Christ here on this earth, we should, we're just observers and we can't ever vote. We can't ever do anything to involve ourselves in the government of this world, blah, blah, blah. I think that initiative about an ambassador came from the Geneva Convention, not from the Bible. Well, even ambassador, I mean, that's who goes to, uh, what do you call it? Uh, when you have a, like the U.S. has these in... Uh, well, they lobby for their nation and their country in right that and left. country where they're at. That's right. what they're They're trying to yeah. influence that country on their country's behalf. Once this world was put under the yoke an of embassy, Babylon... that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Once this world was put under the yoke of Babylon, I don't think there's any greater ambassador for God than Daniel. And he served in the government of Babylon. And was influential. That's right. Or Mordecai. And what he or did. Or Joseph with Egypt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are told to, we're in captivity, and we're told to do everything we can to live in peace and to influence the world around us and the nation around us in that regard. A city up on a hill? Yeah, we might become the righteousness of God in him. You got something you're looking for there, Neil? No, I'm just seeing what the ESV version has to say on that. Well, Neil just got him an ESV, and what is that? English Standard Version. Oh, what's it? <laughs> new version of the Bible. I, I Justin chastised like my, him last week. <laughs> my new American Standard Version. <laughs> I told yeah. him I was going to buy him a new translation because of that old thing, but. Uh, 
No, oh, we, well. we got another thing we're working on that he's going to use the ESV for. So it's good, to, you know, to have different words, different meanings. We can pull a lot of things out, but as was brought out in Bible study this past week, one of the best things we can do to understand it is realize these are letters and they're not supposed to be chopped up into chapters and verse. They have an, especially Paul's letters, they have an intent and purpose that he lays out when he first begins talking to these people and approaches these issues and he connects everything he's saying with it as he goes through here. And then he ends up with a conclusion that is associated with the same thing. Like the book of Galatians, he talks about perversion of the gospel in the very first chapter. And then by the time he hits chapter 5, he says, Therefore, don't be entangled once again in a yoke of bondage. That's directly associated. Christ is not here, didn't come, and give his life and are knowing a bunch of preachers to see how many men they can drag to the kingdom of God in chains. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. It's He said in Psalm 110, my followers will be willing or voluntary. He's dealing, the loving wife. He's she dealing, follows him because she loves him. That's right. And that's who he's dealing with. So that other mess is counterproductive. And you see how Paul is now developing in this letter right here. I'm not here to having dominion over you, but that the spirit of God and love between us should flow from one to the other. And he will compare himself to a parent later on in this book and in this letter. It's the parents that take care of the children, not the children who take care of the parents. Now, the false shepherd, the one who is there to feed off of the sheep, this prophesied in, in Zechariah 11, is will tell the sheep that they're there to fund their great purpose and to feed them. And Isaiah said that children shall be your oppressors. Yeah. So that's that's something we'll get to as we get deeper into this. Okay. Anything else, Neil? No, I don't have okay. anything else. Do you yet feel hosted? Yeah. <laughs> where's where's the time on this? We're right at an hour. Yeah, let's go ahead and leave it off here, and we'll pick it up with Chapter 6 next time. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.